Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning on the uh, first Sunday of 2021. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1 this morning, uh, but let's pray together uh, before we begin. Lord God, we thank you for, for your word, for your truth, that you have given us a whole and a pure gospel by which we may receive salvation, by which you have chosen to save us. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for another year, which we may come together and worship you. Uh, may we have many opportunities in the upcoming year to serve you, and may we take advantage of those. Please be with us this morning. Guide our hearts. Direct our focus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's start reading in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, I'm going to read through verse 12. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the example that we're provided here by Paul on a couple of different levels. Specifically, we're going to look at how Paul approaches the purity of the gospel. And as you can see by the uh, title of the sermon, Upholding the Gospel, is going to be a primary theme this morning. We're also going to look at how he approaches those in Galatia who had been deceived and how he approaches the deceivers quite differently. And then we're going to take some time to apply these things to our lives. Let's start with a little bit of background first this morning. The churches in Galatia were planted by Paul himself on one of his early missionary journeys to the Gentiles. These would have been in the Roman conquered and controlled areas of Galatia, uh, most likely in the southern part of Galatia. This is often referenced during Roman times as the land of the Gauls, which is modern-day central Turkey, north of Israel. Uh, regardless of the exact location, some of the people of Galatia were very early followers of the gospel as preached by Paul. It's believed that the epistle to the Galatians likely was the first letter written by Paul to a church or churches that he had planted. The book of Galatians, short as it is, is a treatise on salvation by grace alone through faith. 
Paul confronted the theological crisis in Galatia directly and pointedly and also lovingly as he sought to turn the church away from the false and legalistic beliefs that had entered their teaching by the false teachers. As for the false teachers, it's nearly impossible to discern precisely who these false teachers were. Uh, Traditionally, they were held to be Judaizers who so frequently polluted the churches of the time. They taught that Christians must accept Jewish customs and practices to truly be saved. They were teaching that salvation was not by grace through faith alone, but instead required secondary actions like circumcision, for example, for an individual to be truly saved. The Judaizers, as many still teach today, believe that Christ was not totally sufficient, but that man had to do much of the work of salvation himself and of himself. It's interesting, in the book, we can kind of deduce who the opponents were based on what Paul taught in the book of Galatians, but Paul doesn't actually tell us hardly anything about what his opponents believed. Ultimately, they did not adhere to the gospel of Christ, and that was sufficient for this letter. We know for certain that they were twisting the gospel of Christ in such a way as to render it a false gospel. Paul is clearly distressed by the turning away from the gospel and shows a tender heart toward those who are confused about their beliefs and are being led astray while also being very straightforward in his words. He's rebuking the church right at the beginning of the letter using words that clearly portray the seriousness of their defection from the gospel of Christ. When he says in verse 6, so quickly deserting, the Greek word for deserting here means exactly what you would assume it means. It means to defect, right? To remove oneself from something they were previously committed to. It has military undertones, such as a soldier deserting his post, for example. Defection from sound teaching is extraordinarily serious. As we will see a bit later, our doctrinal purity is worth fighting for. So Paul does not negate the seriousness of the defection here by the church. But look at how he begins. He addresses the church in a kind, loving, and gentle manner. He begins with a similar greeting as many of his letters by saying, Grace to you and peace. He's not angry. He doesn't wish ill upon them because they're stumbling, but begins with grace and peace. In verse 7, he acknowledges that there are some who trouble you noting that they had not necessarily gone seeking a false gospel, but had been troubled by those who had come into the church from the outside. They had been overtaken, as it were, by a wave of inaccurate teachings that had troubled them and had overcome them. He says later in the book, uh, in chapter 5, verse 7, who hindered you? Again, pointing to outside agitators who had overpowered their spiritual defenses. So Paul's approach here is one of compassion towards the Christians in Galatia, while at the same time being pointed enough to clearly get the point across that what they were beginning to follow was absolutely not acceptable. He doesn't remove the blame from them for falling into false doctrines, but he doesn't demean or belittle them either. 
John Calvin, writing on this passage, says that, quote, he charges the Galatians with defection, not only from his own teaching, but from Christ. For they could only keep to Christ by acknowledging that it is by his benefit that we are set free from the bondage of the law. Thus they were removed from Christ, not in that they entirely rejected Christianity, but because in such corruption only a fictitious Christ was left to them. Because a fictitious Christ is no Christ at all, Paul pulls out all the stops in his attempt to show the Galatians the way back to the true gospel. We see this throughout the entire book, how he does not hesitate to use every tool available to him in order to right their spiritual ship, which was listing dangerously to the side at this moment. We see that he doesn't hesitate to use his own story and his own failures to show the Galatians the error of their ways because Paul had fallen into many of these same errors in the past. He doesn't hesitate to bring in the truths of the Old Testament to support the gospel that he preached. He doesn't hesitate to speak to them clearly and in a manner which they would understand. He doesn't hesitate to use pointed words in a loving manner to show his concern. He doesn't hesitate to vigorously uphold the preeminence of the gospel. He doesn't hesitate to verbally discipline them for their lack of adherence to that gospel. And he doesn't hesitate to show his own tender heart toward them to be vulnerable in a way for their own benefit. In chapter 4, verse 12 of this book, he says that he entreats them or he begs them to come back to the true gospel of Christ. In 419, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. In chapter 5, verse 1, he can't restrain the fire burning within his soul for the church when he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. His heart is clear toward the Galatians. It's not a hard or angry heart. He is focused on their recovery, on the glory of God in that, on their return to Christ, not their damnation. He's not writing them off. He's not becoming angry. There are many lessons for us here, which we'll get to uh, later on. Martin Luther commented on this passage in his Lectures on Galatians, written in 1535, by saying this, we too should follow this example. We should show that toward those poor disciples who have been led astray, we feel as parents feel toward their children, so that they may see our paternal zeal and maternal feelings toward them, and may see that we seek their salvation. But when it comes to the devil and his servants, the originators of perversion and sectarianism, we should follow the example of the apostles. We should be despising and condemning their sham as sharply and as harshly as we can. And I love this example. When a child has been bitten by a dog, the parents chase the dog, but console and soothe the weeping child with the sweetest of words. Two people may hold the same false doctrines to be true, but the intent of the heart, as in everything else, matters. Which brings us to the approach that Paul utilized toward those who were intentionally and willfully hindering the children of God by teaching a false gospel. 
we notice that this letter is not written to the false teachers. It is written to those that the false teachers had deceived. It's written to the church, to the people of God who were seeking God so that they might turn from those doctrines and return to a true understanding of the gospel. He writes to the people of God about the state of their beliefs and their souls. But his attitude toward the false teachers was quite different than his attitude toward those afflicted by them. In our text, uh, in verses 8 and 9, we see this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word accursed here means literally anathema, which is the strongest possible language. It means something that has been set up or laid up specifically to be doomed to destruction or devoted to the direst of woes. Not only that, but it was worth stating twice. In the Jewish custom, a statement that was seen as extremely important was worth stating twice. To give the hearers a notice that this is serious, pay attention, right? Christ used it often with phrases like, truly, truly, I say unto you, before certain statements. Paul's using a strong, powerful word that they would have paid close attention to and is using a technique that shows its importance to show that anyone who would pervert the gospel of Christ were to be seen as doomed and accursed and headed for the worst kind of destruction. We see these terms in this strong language in the book of Galatians because of Paul and of course because of Christ, who's using Paul to write these words, their strong love for the people of God. Because Paul loved Christ and the purity of the gospel so much, he was willing to put himself on the front line of every significant battle between the forces of darkness and the church. If there was to be a spiritual fight for the purity of, gospel, of the gospel, Paul was going to be the first in line. This is not the application part of the message, but our own, our own reservations when it comes to upholding the purity of the gospel should be closely examined. What holds us back from doing that from time to time? We'll get to that a little more later. Just to put a finer point on it, in Romans 9.3, when Paul is writing about the Jews who would not accept Christ, who had rejected Christ and refused the gospel time and time again, he cries out and says this, For I could wish myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This accursed is the same word used twice in Galatians 1, anathema. So we can see by the usage of this word, not only Paul's heart toward the Christians, but his absolute opposition to those who would lead them astray. R.C. Sproul comments, on Galatians 1 like this, we must remember Paul's teaching regarding Christian behavior in the context of disputes. Paul tirelessly urges Christians to be gentle and kind and forbearing and charitable with each other. By the same token, he admonishes Christians not to be quarrelsome, backbiting, contentious, and divisive. For the apostle, the disruption of Christian unity and of the peace of the church is no small thing. 
The spirit pervading his writing is one of a high level of tolerance in non-essential matters. When the apostle touches on matters he regards as essential to the Christian faith, however, he leaves no room for tolerance. Tolerating the intolerable was something Paul would not abide. It takes great wisdom to properly discern what is tolerable and what is not. It takes a history with the Word of God. It takes study. It takes the Holy Spirit to properly discern what is true from what is false. Paul explains how he can be so certain of what he teaches versus what is now being taught in verses 11 and 12 when he says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and just in case there was some disbelief of that, right, of, of that particular statement, Paul goes on throughout much of the rest of the book of Galatians to explain how the original gospel that he taught the Galatians was in accordance with the rest of Scripture. Galatians is tied back to the Old Testament over and over again because Scripture validates Scripture, right? It is not in conflict. And Paul shows that masterfully throughout the book lest there be further uncertainty. Just as Paul references back to the Old Testament often, so must we be able to do the same. We must first have the pure gospel, right, to be able to properly articulate a defense of it. In order to mount a defense of something, we must first be extremely acquainted with it. In the case of the Word of God, His Holy Spirit is necessary as well. So those who study the Scripture in a cursory manner are going to be far less effective in fending off false doctrines when they do inevitably arrive. Let's talk about applying these things. There are dozens of ways that these passages apply to our lives today. I'm going to focus on three. First, we must understand that our doctrine and our theology are intensely important. What we believe both individually and as a church body is absolutely critical. Every doctrine we hold must adhere strictly to the Word of God because doctrine influences belief. Beliefs influence our actions, and our actions are what the world and our co-workers and our children see of us. We portray ourselves as followers of Christ. Therefore, every action we take is a reflection on Christ. Not only that, but a failure to uphold the pure gospel of Christ is a failure to uphold the validity and the importance of Christ himself. We aren't concerned with the purity of the gospel merely because we're generally concerned with the accuracy of information. The importance of the accuracy and the truth of the gospel rises far above the importance of anything else. We really can't compare the gospel to any other writing in any reasonable way. The words of Christ are infinitely higher and more important than the words of any person and therefore must be revered and respected and studied and upheld more than the, much more than the words of anyone else. 
The gospel is not a, a news article that we're trying to determine the validity of, right? It's not a book or a documentary or a podcast that we seek to validate before sending it to our friends because it has good information, right? It's the words of God designed for his glory and to save the souls of those who have been chosen. So for us, how do we perceive Christ? What weight do we give his words? How we perceive Christ will dictate how we perceive his words, right? And therefore, will dictate how often we read them and what importance we assign to them in our minds and in our daily lives. There's a direct correlation between our view of Christ and our desire to cling to Christ's gospel. If we perceive Christ as merely a heavenly gift giver and a method by which we can enter heaven and not hell and someone who heals us when we're sick and yet nothing much more than that, we will not assign much importance to the gospel of that Christ. If Christ is a cosmic Santa Claus passing out things we want when we want them, then he is of little benefit for the majority of our lives unless we need something. And we will not fight for the purity of that gospel. But if we hold a true and an accurate view of Christ that we have taken directly from Scripture through the Holy Spirit, then we will study his words with joy and with reverence and with intensity, and we will defend those words using their own power against those who would contort them for evil purposes. What we believe is important for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of the souls who listen to us and for the sake of Christ, whom we claim to represent. Secondly, we must ensure that our correction on biblical issues is done properly. We do not discipline the child who walked up to a dog and was bitten, as Luther pointed out for us earlier. We comfort that child, and we bind up his wounds, and we show him what should be learned from that experience. But the dog cannot roam unchecked either. There must be action taken against it. We cannot tolerate the intolerable, as Sproul pointed out. The gospel must be upheld, or it will end up being a shadow of itself in a church, or in a soul. A gospel that is watered down and adjusted and tweaked, maybe for better reception, is not a gospel at all. The true gospel will always remain, because God says it will, but God uses the church and He uses His people to gather in those lost souls. If His people are holding untrue beliefs, they are highly ineffective, and are missing out on the very purpose of their lives. So our approach, when bad doctrine is uncovered, must be dependent upon who is a victim of it and who is the perpetrator of it. Everyone who holds inaccurate doctrinal beliefs is not necessarily the originator of it. Most of us, including myself, of course, probably have inaccurate beliefs somewhere in our lives. But rarely is someone who holds inaccurate beliefs the actual originator of that falsehood. Far more often, they have fallen into a pit and need a hand up. It takes courage to have that conversation with someone. 
We have to hold the gospel of Christ, the purity of the gospel of Christ, and that person's soul as more valuable than our own discomfort or even our own fear of speaking to them. And we have to keep a tender, loving, Christ-focused heart at the forefront. We are not a hammer, and that person is not a nail. On the other side of the coin is to see the love it takes in someone's heart to confront us. And we must take care that we receive that correction with a grateful heart because they care about us more than they care about their own discomfort in having that conversation. Iron sharpens iron, but first it must be good iron, and then it must be willing to give of itself for the benefit of the other. Lastly, it behooves us to ensure that we don't fall into the same trap the Galatians did. Paul says in verse 6 that he was astonished at how quickly they deserted the gospel and turned to another. Our beliefs can change in an instant. A church's beliefs can change rapidly. It would be exceedingly unwise of anyone, regardless of spiritual maturity, to be overly confident in their own ability to avoid falling into false doctrines as the Galatians did, or to assume it would take years of laziness and disregard to eventually slide into some kind of false belief. This happened very, very quickly in Galatia. So quickly, Paul was astounded. And it's happened throughout all of history, right? Sometimes rapidly, sometimes slowly. There's no doubt that spiritual warfare against the people of Christ is constant and it is ongoing and it's designed to separate us from the purity of the gospel. Yes, we have the Spirit of God as believers and yes, we have Scripture. But without careful, focused, and frequent study and prayer, our own sinful nature and the outside influences of an evil world will pull us from the purity of the gospel. Any words, whether spoken or written, that interpret Scripture must be carefully measured against the Word of God because the source of those words are not directly from God. They are put through a human filter, which is often cracked and broken, even if the intentions of that person are pure. Whether the teaching we hear comes from the radio or a podcast or read in a book or from this very pulpit... We cannot automatically believe something because of its source, unless that source is Scripture. Nothing I say today should be automatically believed. Nothing Kent says week in and week out should be automatically believed. Just because someone stands behind a pulpit, myself obviously included, does not make them infallible. Just because you've believed what they've said to date does not mean that they are preaching the truth currently or will continue to preach the truth in the future. There are many pastors throughout history that we refer to as early so-and-so and late so-and-so. Well, early so-and-so was great. They don't, don't read their late stuff, right? If you have 99% or 100% agreement with, as an example, John MacArthur over decades of time, it does not mean he's always been right or he'll continue to be right in the future. Maybe we can assume at this point that his heart is in the right place, which 
I think you could argue is almost certainly the case, but his words are still fallible and inferior to God's. It's easy to accept something because it's said by someone we like or someone we trust or because it gives us some benefit that we desire. Automatic acceptance of teaching is not beneficial, nor is it safe. Even if we want to, even if we want to believe something automatically, even if we come across a certain teaching that aligns perfectly with the desire we have, sometimes it can be very easy to believe something just because we want to. Because something inside of us desires that belief. You can find books or videos or other materials that will back up nearly any belief you want to have. You want to believe the earth is flat? There's websites for that, among many other things, right? For hundreds of years, one of the primary teachings of the Catholic Church was that you had to spend money to purchase indulgences in order to get yourself to heaven. It was backed up with the Bible. But it wasn't backed up with the whole Bible. It was backed up with a few twisted passages that the leadership of the church used to fleece the people of their money. It isn't just the Catholic Church, of course. Mainstream Protestant churches in America throughout the first half of our existence as a nation use the Bible falsely to conclude and preach that God endorsed and encouraged the slavery of other races because those races were inferior. This was taught from American pulpits for decades. A widely renowned pastor named Frederick Dalko wrote a widely distributed treatise in 1823 that said the curse of Noah upon Ham for his misdeeds extended to all of Ham's African descendants forever, and their slavery was, quote, divinely inspired and an accomplishment of Noah's prediction. They were to be servants of servants and in the lowest state of servitude forever, end quote. And many, many churches endorsed that belief, disregarding much of Scripture in doing so. It is not impossible to fall into terribly false doctrines. The two examples that I just gave were at the time, they were argued they were fought over and in the end prevailed for a significant period of time in many thousands if not millions of souls and were endorsed and taught by hundreds of church leaders. How securely do we hold to the pure gospel of Christ? He is the vine and we are the branches, right? How diligent are we to grow and strengthen our branch that connects to His vine? to pull our spiritual nutrients from His words so that we do not wither away? How committed are we to searching through the Scriptures? We're human and therefore always vulnerable to false doctrines and to a lesser gospel. Falling into those things brings dishonor to the name of Christ because we are His representatives on this earth. This is why we must put on the whole armor of God daily and be diligent and prayerful in our frequent and focused study of the Word of God. This is why we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit within us and why we have to keep Christ in His proper place and ourselves in ours.
my wife and I were doing our Bible study last night, and I came across this quote um, by Charles Spurgeon that's perfect, and I wanted to include it this morning at the last minute. Spurgeon says this, Without constant restoration, we are not ready for the perpetual assaults of hell, or the stern afflictions of heaven, or even the strife within ourselves. When the whirlwind is loosed, woe to the tree that has not drunk deeply and grasped the rock with many intertwisted roots. When storms arise, woe to the sailors who have not strengthened their mast, cast their anchor, or sought a haven. Let me conclude with this. The Berean church in Acts chapter 17 was complimented for their detailed and their careful study of the scriptures. They were complimented because they were very careful with their belief system and did not neglect the word. They were quick to compare everything against scripture. That kept them safe from false doctrines. It made them effective and it gave glory to God. May we not be Galatians who are so easily and quickly led astray, but instead may we be Bereans when it comes to the fervor with which we study the scriptures and therefore uphold the pure gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would seek hard after you that we will work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, that we would not neglect your word, that we would be refined over and over again, that we would sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. Let us be committed, fully committed to you, to the purity of your gospel. I pray that we can take this example this morning and apply it in our own lives that we would not be weak spiritually, but we would be strong, strong in you. I pray that your spirit will guide us and direct us in this new year, that we would be recommitted and rededicated every day to upholding the purity of your gospel and of your words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.